right. What's up, my miners of intelligence and consciousness? I'm Rick Brooks, and this is Rick's Mind. Today on the show, we have my friend, Mr. Brian Bradley. What's going on, brother? Thanks for thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Rick. I know we've been talking about this for a while, like almost over a year now. And so I'm glad we finally were able to uh, pull it together, even though we live like in the same town. For some reason, it's taken so long to. <laughs> Dude, it's 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 we live in wild times, man. You know, we were, yeah. I think we were going to do one, and then the coronavirus hit, and we didn't know what the fuck that was or what it was going to be. And then life had holidays happened, and it just. But we're doing it now, and that's we're all doing, that matters. We're doing and it now, and we're going to be dropping some bombs. I think we're going to have some fun today. I think so as well. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, and I, I you know, I've known you for a few years now, uh, and I don't know why I never asked you this question, dude. Why did you decide to become a lawyer? Like, what was that? Why? That's a good. I mean, I've always wondered that. Yeah, like why? Like, just why a lawyer? And like, then we can like why the niche of the special niche that I do. That's even interesting. I would love that. Too, yeah. But yeah, like why? Why law? So, um, I was young going into college and I really didn't even want to go to college. I was a premier baseball player, you know, like pitcher, really strong arm being recruited by the Oakland A's. And I was like, I don't need to go to college. You know, like I'm going to be a multimillionaire playing baseball, you know? And my mom was like, no, you got to go to college. You got to go to college. What happens if, what happens if? And so I was like, all right, fine. Like what's the number one baseball school? Like I graduated high school in 99. Like what, what school just won the national championships, Arizona state. All right. I'm going to go there. So and so <laughs> went to Arizona State, went to go play baseball. And, you know, like my arm just gave up out on me, you know, like three times within like a year and a half. And um, I didn't care about school at the time. I didn't care about anything. I was just trying to get through to go play in the majors and pretend that I went to college. And, you know, halfway through college, your arm gives out and I had to find a new career path with a really bad GPA of a normal oh, high profile athlete, you know, <laughs> you know? And so my mom was like, Hey, go check out philosophy. Like you have that, you have a really good philosophical mind, very logical. You're good with words. Um, trust me, like, you're going to really like this. And I was like, okay, fine. And, you know, just fell in love with philosophy. My philosophy teacher was going to go get a new professorship at San Diego university of San Diego. He's like, can you come and get a doctorate with me and just like follow me out there? And I was like, listen, you know, I can do philosophy on the side and reading books and writing on my own, but you guys don't get paid. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I want to at least get a law degree and see where life takes me. And so I just went to a small school because I just knew I wanted a law degree and I had no idea what I wanted to do with law. Um, I just knew I, I needed something to hedge my bet for the future. And so that's what propelled me to go to law school. And then when I was in law school, I just went to school at night and then worked at the district attorney's office in Santa Barbara during the day. And so I kind of had like a great, you know, three-year internship in the practice of law while going to law school to where I was able to just jump straight when I, when I got into it. And I just found out I love law. I'm really good at it. And it was kind of like one of my passions. Yeah. So what you, you worked at the, the district attorney kind of what, what would, what was your, some of the duties of your job there? Just. Yeah. So as an intern there, it was just at first it was doing, you know, helping the investigators and detectives and going on scenes and serving people, um, helping with discovery process. And then um, I got put into um, the DUI, DUI cases, um, writing briefs, legal research. And then 
um, really quick, I just kept moving my way up and then I got ended up on high profile cases and sexual assaults. And I actually was one of the interns that worked on like the Michael Jackson second case and a couple of the really big cases um, as the head intern, like managing like a lot of the discovery and evidence and stuff like that. And so that's what you do as like an intern, depending on where, where you're going. It just happened to be when I, when I graduated law school, 2008, you know, the whole world fell apart the first time, the great recession. Yeah. 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 I actually had no idea you worked on the Michael Jackson. Yeah. Yeah, That, and then there's this Vasquez case of this woman who was taking kids, you know, and adopting them from Mexico and then putting them in cages. And so I worked on that case. And so a lot of really big high profile cases, um, which kind of helped propel me into, you know, like what I do for high pro like high risk litigation now. Um, because I just wasn't afraid of it. I was, that's where I was, you know, learning from, from the beginning. So I didn't know any different. Okay. So that makes it. So from, from there, what, how did you like from working at the district attorney's office, how do you get to where you are now? And actually for our listeners that don't know, why don't you tell them what you're doing now? Yeah. So what I am now is I'm, you know, an asset protection attorney. And what that is, is, you know, like, I guess your best reference would be kind of TV and movies. It's, protecting really rich people's money and assets and real estate and um, putting them into overseas trust and like Swiss bank accounts. Um, But legally, you know, not like the dumb stuff you see on TV, you know, the legit way of doing it. And it's not as sexy as you think. It's pretty just mundane and boring, just like creating a bank account and a trust. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's what we do, you know, giving people peace of mind, but I do it for very wealthy people. Um, And I got into that just from, being a top 100 high stake litigator. And so I just, the economy tanked. Like I said, my job offer got rescinded from the prosecutor's office. The whole state of California got put on a hiring freeze. And so I was like, shit, you know, like what the fuck am I going to do? I have no means of work now. Everything that I wanted to do in my career as a prosecutor just got thrown out the window, but I had to get into court. You know, I had to get experience and no one's hiring. What am I going to do? So I literally just started knocking on literally all the state agencies doors and saying, look, I know you can't pay me, but you have a lot of indigent clients, like, you know, people who can't afford attorneys um, that need legal representation. You just front the court costs. I will go in and represent them for free. And they're like, what? And I'm like, no, seriously, I will represent them for free. Just cover the court costs because I'm not going to pay to represent them also. So you just cover the cost. And I did that for three years because that was the only way I was able to get work. So I ended up getting more trial work in three years than most people who had 25 years worth of litigation experience. And then I, from there, I just became a janitor with so much, you know, like basically like better call Saul type of thing. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Hey, we're, we're that movie resonates so much with me in the show, not a movie, but that show, because it's literally, you know, Hey, we're stuck in this $40 million trial. We have no idea how to do it. We're not even a trial firm. We just took this case and it blew up in our face. Like, what do we do? And so I'd come in, you know, write the ship, get a great settlement. The firm would just either give me my check and say, thanks, the door's right there. We don't do this for a living. Or they would try to keep me on, but realize like that type of business and, you know, trials and work just isn't their style. Um, And so I was always bouncing around from firm to firm or project to project or making other people money. And eventually I just got tired of being used and said, you know, screw this. And a couple of my mentors came to me and they're like, look, Brian, you know, like you're us 25 years ago, you know, don't be afraid to just stick your neck out and do this on your own. Like, otherwise you're just going to keep getting used and abused. And so I just said, you know what? You're right. Fuck it. You know, put the risk on myself, do what I want, manage myself. 
And this way I can take the cases that I want. And I just went out on my own. And ever since then was doing high risk profile cases. And I got tired of seeing problems just coming in the door. Like we have a messed up legal system, you know, like it's, it's, I call it like a Sue happy Nirvana in the yes. U S you know, like 99% of all the cases in the world are filed in the U S you know, there's, there's like a, over a $400 billion industry, you know, it's just a business industry. Now, um, if you have something to lose, you're going to be preyed upon. And I got tired of seeing clients for no fault of their own being preyed upon and their lives falling apart. And most of these people are just, you know, firefighters or cops or real estate investors who work so hard over the last 20 years for their, you know, building up a portfolio, they're scared to death of losing it. And the next thing you know, one, one wrong lawsuit wipes them out for life. And so I said, well, there has to be a way to be proactive and plan above this. And so I reached out to the top firms in the nation and just said, hey, here's who I am, you know, best attorney of America list, you know, super lawyer, rising star, you know, um, lawyer distinction and all this, like, here's a value I can offer. Plus my trial experience, you guys do this at a high level, protecting assets on the back end side. Let's work together and see how we can collaborate. And they said, we love it. You know, I'm like, and I wasn't piggish. I just said, we'll do it off of clients I bring in. Let's just see how we work together. And, you know, it ended up being a great marriage and we work very well together. And now, you know, I was able to transition to being proactive and helping people before they need me and before they get in trouble so they don't lose their assets. Okay. Okay. That's fast. Well, a, a very wise person, and I'm not sure, maybe I read this as well, that if you're very wealthy, you actually don't own anything. You simply control everything. That's exactly right? what it is. Yeah. So that, and that, because I mean, um, I think, and maybe it was Robert Kiyosaki. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but uh, it made a lot of sense. And, and like, maybe you don't own the house, your corporation does. And uh, that's basically just off the top of my head, how I'm relating to it. That's basically what you're enabling humans to do. Is it, to it is. And it is a Robert Kiyosaki principle and other rich people's principles. Like the rich don't own, own things. They just get the benefit, use and enjoyment of them. Their trust owns it. Um, you don't correction on what you said though. Like you don't put your personal residence into an LLC. You put it into a trust. Otherwise you lose, you know, the $250,000 tax benefit by taking oh. that of your name. So you oh. put your personal residence into a trust. You put assets that are risky and can go boom, like houses, you know, investment assets, like houses, like rentals and boats and planes into LLCs. Those LLCs are owned by another business entity, not in your name. And then you just layer up as you go. And then that's all owned by a trust. And then that trust has an offshore bank account connected to it that loads your money. Okay. Um, and so it's all scalable depending on where you go. But yeah, the rich don't own things. They just get the beneficial use and enjoyment and they pass off liability into the business entities. That's so smart. That is so crazy, man. What's, I mean, how many, how many layers, like just off the top of your head, how many layers do does, does one need in order to kind of feel safe? It all depends. Like if you're, if you're up there at the high levels, um, I would say you don't need more than three. You know, we start at the base, the foundational level, that's going to be like an LLC. And then um, from there, you're going to go into a management company as a second layer. That's going to own all your LLCs. And then you'll be a managing member of that mid layer. And then when you hurt, you know, you turn that 1 million net of unprotected assets. So that means you have 1 million you know, dollars worth of equity that's not protected, you know, not including like mortgages and stuff like that. So you take your mortgage and your debt out the scenario. Um, 1 million plus, that's when you get into the, the strong asset protection trust. And, 
And so those would be your three layers. And you, you don't need anything more than that. The rest of it's just salesmanship of law firms trying to up your ante for nothing that's going to really work or give you value for. Um, and with the trust, we just like, we don't mess around because our clients are all high net worth. We just go straight um, offshore to strong jurisdictions like the Cook Islands and then build a bridge back to where that trust is classified domestically. And if you ever are screwed with or someone tries to fuck with your money and you know sue you, then we drop the domestic compliance and you're just strictly offshore. And when you do get sued, we can just say, well, we're not collectible. All of our money, if we're our clients offshore, here's a penny on the dollar, go away. Oh, wow, really? Dude, that's badass. Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty cool. And it's been around for 40 years. I mean, you know, the Cook Islands Trust is what started all of this in what, 1984, creating the, you know, an asset protection trust. And then 10 years later, the US tried to follow suit. So now the US has about 20 jurisdictions that have some sort of asset protection spendthrift trust legislation. But the issue is just the US legal system. It, you know, unless you live in one of those states and even then it's starting to get weakened. Um, so that's where you really need to, when you have that high net worth, you just need to eventually in your worst case scenario, be able to get out of Dodge and not worry about a crazy judicial system of a judge going rogue and saying, I'm just going to, you know, give you a $5 million judgment because I don't like you. Yeah. Is there, is there a lot of that that goes down? There is. I mean, that's why most cases, like 99% of all cases end up settling because nobody wants to go to the whim of a judge or a jury because it's unpredictable. Yeah. And then depending on what state you're in, like, let's say you're on the coast, like Port, you know, Oregon or, or California, New York, they're very extreme in their judgments and what judges want to do. Um, so, and you can see like a lot of our clients are like, you know, surgeons who have, you know, malpractice coverage, but only at 1 million and they can get an over coverage malpractice lawsuit. You know, next thing you know, there's a 17 million judgment dollar against them. And now all their assets are on the table as well, because their insurance is only going to cover and pay for up to a million dollars of that. That's all going to get eaten up just by legal fees. And so where's the rest of the money going to come from? Damn. It's, it's very, it's very troubling to think about like, how much of a human component is in like the legal system? Like it's a game, right? You've got, you've got one side versus another and sometimes logic leaves the pool. And you can see that a lot. Definitely. I'm sure you saw that working in the, the judicial system of like the criminal law. Um, I mean, where are you? Do you ever, have you, are you familiar with like the innocence project or anything of that nature? Yeah, I did. I do some of that stuff. You know, like I was doing one project, because from now my litigation stuff, I just cherry pick what I want, you know, because one, I like to maintain my winning record. <laughs> so yeah. I'm very selective on what I take and the clients that I take, but I do like to do a lot of pro bono stuff. And, you know, like I, I was trying to do some work when Oregon's DNA um, laws got rewritten. Um, and so we tried to challenge this one case, but we were, ended up not being able to because of a statutory hurdle, because there was no evidence to retest because it got burnt, which means like we got dissolve you know like the um labs ended up you know getting rid of all the dna that was being able to be tested at the instruction of the prosecutor's office when so because that happened and there's no there's no statutory penalty for a prosecutor to order that so they just get a little slap on the hands hey sorry like you weren't supposed to do that how dare you but now we have no idea if this guy who was you know in jail for 10 years for you know, alleged, you know, sexual assault. Well, we, we don't know if he really was or not, and we can't get his DNA retested. And so we tried to challenge it off of some new statutes, but we couldn't because 
the only hurdle was there was nothing to retest. So because we can't have any DNA to retest, we can't proceed forward with that case. So he's just fucked. So he just, no matter what, like, I don't know if he did it or not, but let's say he didn't do it. Yeah. He's just sitting there fucked if he didn't do it. And it's like, like really? Because the prosecutors ordered the DNA to be burnt. Like there's nothing that that's I can so, do now. That's, that's so crazy, man. Yeah, that's, I mean, we we got to be careful because we will get lost in that, which I am next time I have you on, we should just get full on get what, what is the, are you familiar with the Oregon genetic privacy law? No, not really. I've, I have no idea what, what I, I've something I was reading something. It doesn't, doesn't, uh, tomorrow, tomorrow, pull, pull something up. We'll see. We'll see what that, that is in a little bit, but, um, dude, what do you think about, uh, we have to talk about it. What do you think about yesterday and what was, what's going on in that realm, uh, with the people taking the Capitol? There's, there's a few things that I like kind of want to unpack there. Yeah. Number I mean, one, I, I'll, I'll try to answer like my, my view of it. It may not be like what you're like the angle you're, you're going for, but we can flush it out. Um, like I, I stay politically neutral, you know, like I'm really not in the, you know, like that political. Um, I don't believe, especially in like political parties, you know, I think political parties lead to a massive divide and that's kind of why we're at, we're at where we are now, you know, but I am a person, I do keep track of the news and, you know, culture. I, I think that we are really, if you're like, if you're a historian, we're living in very interesting times, you know, and with this big political divide, you know, we're, we have the fall of what I call like the news and education system leading us. And so when we have the news, that's no longer news and they're just opinion pieces. And, you know, we have, you know, they're pushing political ideology and they care more about ratings and public opinion. You know, we have a serious problem. And then you combine that with all the suppression of, you know, other news out, you know, news by social media censorship and then poor education you know, we have a messed up democracy system because it relies on educated people and an unbiased news and we don't have that anymore. So um, we're living in identity politics. And I think that's part of what's going on from yesterday all the way through this whole last year and the last four years. You know, if you're not perfectly politically correct, you know, your, your personal opinions and your beliefs then don't matter. You know, you have to be a perfect match with other people's opinions or, you know, if you're not, you're vilified. Um, we're now an oversensitive society that's just trying to pacify all the small groups of radical people and the majority of people aren't radical. And so, but we're all lumped into what other radical people are doing, depending on where your politics lie. And it's pretty messed up. And I, I was that? Uh, I, I, I agree with everything you just said. I do think you missed a very important point though. I think that the big, one of the biggest issues that we have is we cannot decide we don't know what's real and what's not anymore. We can't just, we can't yeah. decide what's true. And if we can't decide what's true, we can't come to a compromise. Exactly. We have, we have a bunch of people that wholeheartedly believe. And when I look at them, I, I, I'm like, they believe it. Like they fucking think that he was robbed. I, I don't, I don't think so. I think that there's always a little bit of fuckery in every single election that's ever gone down because it's humans. That's just what we do. I think that he did lose. I think he lost, but these people actually believe that he lost and they think that our democracy is under attack. So it's like, how are we going to explain to them that that's not the case? I don't it's, think it's a matter of explaining. I think it's a matter of how do you rebuild up trust that's been broken over, yes, the, last yes. eight, over the last like eight, 12 years. And that's the issue when is really the collapse of news. When news stopped being news and it became opinion pieces pushing political ideology, 
It made people, well, I'm going to watch CNN or I'm going to watch Fox. I'm going to watch NB, you know, a, what is it, ABC, or I'm going to watch, you know, like Newsmax. People now pick and choose what they want based on their ideology because now the news isn't the news. They're just picking ideologies to watch. And then we have also people who aren't educated in different political systems and history and the world. So they have no idea like what totalitarianism is, socialism, why capitalism works or does like- Marxism is good. They don't fucking, you know, not gonna look at Bolshevism and its dangers because they don't know, they haven't put it- They have no idea. So when you even try to have these conversations with them, they sit in there like blind, you know, mind blown up and doe-eyed, you know, with deer in the headlight syndrome. And you're like, okay, you're already lost in the conversation. So like, this is just going to go nowhere. Um, and so I think it's a matter of how do you re-educate people to know what history is? And then how do you build back up trust in the news media that's no longer reporting news, but pushing ideology? And I think like one thing I got from this, you know, you know, going back to the rioters from yesterday are, you know, like they're just fucking idiots, you know, like, are you stupid? You know, like, what do you honestly think that you're going to get out of it? Do you honestly think that, you know, like, you're going to go and take the Capitol building and, you know, do you think that's going to be sustainable? And no, you know, but the bias that I find is with the media, along with, you know, two different set of rules and what laws get applied and the who and the what, and, you know, what's really driving, what's really driving all of this. And that's what makes me crazy when I watch the news and I can't stand it anymore. You know, what I get from this, like I was saying is, so it was okay. You're telling me that, that not you, but like when I watched the news, Antifa and Black Lives Matter to burn cities in Minneapolis, Seattle, here in Portland, New York, as well as the small businesses and attack people, beat them up. But then the counterparty is treated differently when they protest, you know? So I'm like, I can't stand bias. And I guess that's just because I look at law from a purist standpoint. Yeah. You know, Uh, what's that? When you said counterparty, like, would you, you want to clarify that? Like, how are they treated differently? Well, because they're vilified right now on news when you watch the news. So the, the, the protesters from yesterday, that storm, you had a hundred, like a hundred stupid idiots compared to like the hundreds of thousands of protesters that were out there peacefully. They were Trump supporters, but they weren't out burning crap. You know, then you had a couple hundred, like a hundred or whatever idiots who no one knows who these people are. And then there's some reporters that are reports are coming out that, you know, the Department of what Defense and the FBI were did like face recognition and found some of them were Antifa members disguised through <laughs> recognition. No like, way. No, I mean, that was on the news this morning. And they're like, and so I'm like, so we're like, hey, who the hell are these people? Let's figure that out first before the news starts reporting these things. Let's identify these people. And then all these idiots better be prosecuted. I don't care who you are and what politic political party you're from. You know, like you're stupid if you think that you're going to try to, you know, take down a political system, you know, through through violence. No, sorry, prosecute them. They're dumb. But we need to identify the people and then hold the same legal standards per party, not just because, well, during this whole what, how many days were we here in Portland under, you know, like rioting, like more than 100? Well, why was that okay? And then why was Seattle able to create a autonomous zone? Why yeah. were the businesses in New York be able to be burnt and destroyed? Why did Minneapolis get burnt down? You didn't really didn't hear much about people asking them to stop during the summer. But now in one day, a peaceful protest and a hundred dumbasses. Well, now I mean, vilify. Now they're trying to vilify a political party. And I, I just don't like seeing the bias. Like I'm not political. I just don't like seeing the bias on both sides. I'm just so tired to, of it. To, to your point, to your point. I, I I did a healthy watching of both, and it all depended on which news channel uh, you were watching. Yeah. So if you 
if you lo- looked at the more conservative leaning, they, everyone was rioting and everything was being burned down. If you looked at the more um, progressive reporting slash liberal reporting, however you want to phrase that, everyone was being peaceful. I think yeah. that there's a, I think there's a healthy mix of both for both parties. And that's what I'm saying is like, I it's not it, news. Yeah. It's just political ideology now. And that's where the it, trust is broken. And they're like, how do we fix it? I think it gets fixed by educating people. And then finding news outlets that are no longer going to be opinion pieces and and, ide- and pushing political ideology. Then people start getting news, they're educated, and we start building, you know, like we, we weld the fracture. So I, I love your kind of ideology. I just, I don't know if there is a fixing this. I don't know if there is I, either, I because think- eventually every system in the world, you know, country eventually goes through its collapse. So to think that now, we're not, it, it's stupid. I, it I don't, I don't, time, but. I'm not a hundred percent sure that we're necessarily in, in decline. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, that's a, and we could get into that as well. Um, but as I feel like we might be, it, it kind of seems like we're in, in decline, but that I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure I'm on that, on that camp, but what I wanted to get to before I go down that road is I feel like what we all need to do is do a lot more reading. I, I look at self-education. You got to constantly yes. want to evolve your brain. Yeah. You know, and it kind of like, goes to like my self principles of, you know, success, but so you always just have to want to learn and grow. Is that simple? But if you can't pick up a book and educate yourself or question something that someone says, you're never going to be able to think on your own. Yeah. I, I, uh, I agree, man. Self-education really is. And, and, and also, uh, I think it was, uh, Royce Gracie said this, um, the mind is like, a parachute it only works if it's open i just i really feel like we need to read a lot of books listen to audible um and, and to understand issues when when i'm confused about something i actually don't go to the internet i go to books that's not entirely true I go to the internet look for books and i buy those bitches but you know just i just uh i get i get worried because we need to figure out that there's a lot of nuance not everything is black or white. I mean, there's a lot of nuance in in the world. And I, I feel like a lot of the things that I see, the issues that I have is people just aren't kind. And so the reason I even do this podcast is to get people like you and other, other people that are pretty rational. Maybe we don't, we're not going to agree on everything, but we can simply have a conversation and a dialogue log and we can we can try and discern what the truth is like this show is me speaking my truth and it's me trying to be ta- kind to my guests i feel like we have forgotten how to talk to each other we've forgotten some in some ways what it is to be human um because we're also sometimes so mean or and, so self-absorbed like people just don't yeah. want to hear something that's outside of their thought process or their circle and they only yes. associate with people that are in the similar mindset as them. And it's like, well, then how are you ever gonna grow and evolve? Exactly. And and not only that, every every where you turn, there's fear. It's, it's just this fear-mongering society. And at the end of the day, life is too short to be afraid. And we all are 
going to die. And once you kind of accept that and realize like, I don't have really time to be caught up in this base level motion and you try and use that fear as a tool, it's definitely necessary evolutionarily speaking for our survival, but it's like, how can you use fear to propel you forward and to do great things. Yeah. No, I agree. And I think part question. of it goes, yeah. And I think part of it goes to like one, not letting fear paralyze you. But then two, like one of the things I'd like to talk about is like, you know, like one, you got to love yourself to manage the fucking defunct dysfunction in your life. Yeah. We're horrible. We're horrible at it. What do you mean by that? That's I've never heard it put that way. I like that. Manage the dysfunction in your life. Yeah. Okay. Something. So I've been listening to, you know, I came across it and it's like one of my third things that I like to talk about when I talk about, you know, like success and stuff like that. Um, you know, and like, I'm not going to like try to preach to, it kind of sounds like you and I are going to start preaching to people. <laughs> Brothers <laughs> you know, and sisters, sit down. Gonna, I'm going to pound some points on this one because I honestly think this is like one of the biggest things that people are missing in their life. And I, you know, I'm going to, I came across uh, on YouTube by Le Les Brown and Tyrese Gibson, you okay. know, and so it kind of gets summarized like this. And I'm going to start with this saying, um, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, all right? So I'm going to say it again, like, in the land of, of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And now, you know, like, we all have a choice, right? You know, like, I have a choice, you have a choice. We all have choices every day to decide who and what we want to exist and to experience every second, every minute, every hour, every day, week, month, and year of our life, you know? Um, but we're not, we're not powerless. You know, we get to choose that. But to hit onto your point, you know, we live a life of powerlessness and fear in our minds and in our actions. Like, you know, we were talking about, we live through fear or insecurity or just codependency on other people or we're addicted to sex and porn or alcohol or other people's problems, you know, and we become, there's a word I learned like soul tied, you know, to others, um, you know, go read R.C. Blake's Jr. on this and, you know, a book on, you know, also he wrote Kingology is a great thing about soul ties and how to become, you know, like a man or a queenology, how to become a woman, you know, they're just great books. And so we place our, you know, for example, our spouses at the center of our universe for someone else. It can be someone else. And the problem with that is when a person is in the center of your universe and it's not like God or you, you know, if you don't believe in God or, you know, like some kind of, you know, spirituality, your mission in life tends to get derailed and fucked up, you know? And the other problem is that when they let you down, that person in the center of your universe lets you down or leaves you, or you don't measure up, you know, where do you go from there? You can't go anywhere because you place them or that thing in the center of your universe. And so now you're so tied to them or that thing. Now you're just stuck. You can't grow anywhere because whatever it was you were so tied to is still there. And so when you have all of these issues and dysfunctions in your life, you know, just because you go to sleep at night and you close your eyes, it doesn't mean that you're actually resting, you know, you're not resting because now every minute of your day is just filled with issues and problems and insecurities and other people's problems and dysfunctions and negativity and just toxic shit that you just invited into your own life. You know, nobody's forced you in your life, you know, to, to do that. You opened up the gate and let it in yourself. And I find this is what most people are doing. And that is a choice. And that's your choice that you made. And now you need to take the responsibility and fix it. You know, it's just caused such toxic turmoil, just dysfunction, just like a brain that's constantly yelling like, ah, in your head, you know, like every day. And yeah. so there's no rest there. You know, there's just no recovery when you go to sleep at night. It's just a mind and a spirit that's just in constant turmoil. 
And so if this, like, I don't know if this sounds familiar to you, you know, or to anyone who's going to be listening to it, you know, but you have a choice. Like I always tell people when we talk right now, you know, to love and to respect yourself too much to allow any of this toxic crap to continue in your life. And you have to choose to walk in a direction of peace, but that's not what people are doing right now. People are just constantly getting more and more polarized. And so we have the power to control every second, every minute, every hour, every day, week and month and every, you know, every year of our life and to keep our lives from being negative and crazy. You know, like we accomplish all of this by controlling the people that we allow access to in our day-to-day life. And so I always tell, you know, whoever I talk to, like, Feeling good is a responsibility to yourself, you know, and only you are responsible for your own happiness and how you feel at the end of each day. And it's dependent on what and who you decide to include in your day. And you can't expect your wife or your spouse to be that person. It's your job. It's your responsibility. And you only got 24 hours in your day, you know? So it's like, how do you choose to spend them? Me personally, I always like to feel great about myself. Like you see me at the gym, like I'm a very energetic, happy go person to everybody because I refuse to be submerged in dysfunctional things and situations and shit in my life. If you're going to be dysfunctional, I refuse to be around you. You know, like I'm a grown man. I take responsibility and control for myself. And I think that's what other people have to do. And so it's kind of like, just because I get invited to like, Hey, come out, you know, to dinner with me or let's go grab drinks well, maybe I don't want to hang out with you. I don't feel obligated to respond to you or to show up just because you invited me or to come to dinner because you invited me. I may not like you, you know, it's nothing personal, but maybe like the last time we hung out, you really didn't inspire me that on. You made me feel like it was irrelevant. You know, I'm not obligated to be there. And I don't think like you guys, your listeners should like get me wrong. Like I'm not talking about like isolationist or like separatism or being lonely. I don't want you all just to be like shut in, like, you know, huddled in on your couch all by yourself. It just has to do with taking control of yourself, your life and how you spend each second of your day to its fullest. You know, like only you can decide, you know, what and where you get to go and you want to experience, you know, whatever it is that you want to experience in your day. So my question really is when I, you know, like, talk to people and like kind of what I think you were hitting on earlier is like, do you really love yourself? You know, like, honestly, do you really love yourself? And that kind of goes to like the beginning of the question I started, like in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, right? We're not talking about actual blind people. They all have vision. They just choose not to use the things in life that they observe and that they've been revealed to them. Like most people will just stick their head in the sand, you know, and move around the world. Like, oh no, they didn't mean that when they said they hated me or like, I didn't hear that. You know, like that's not what they really meant. I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to pretend that that didn't happen. And no, like you got an inner, you, you got to look into the real world. So use your vision, you know, like the person who actually uses their vision in the land of the blind is going to then be able to be king over the rest of the world. And so I'm going to ask again, like, do you love yourself? Absolutely, man. That's that's really what it's about. The, everything is, everything's so simple. It's, I mean, I've, shit, I've only been alive for 29 years. And I use, I thought I had. Well, we had a little bit of a technical difficulties. That's the problem with doing these remotely. Um, fuck you, Zoom. Uh, but uh, yeah, more like user error. User yeah, maybe. Error. Um, but no, what, what I what we'll I was blame it on Zoom. Zoom. We'll blame it on Zoom right it's now. Definitely Zoom's fault. All but, fault, man. Well, we were we were kind of getting into what I wanted to sort of talk about um, was when you really open your mind and you actually start looking into things, 
you figure out and, and studying history as well. You figure out kind of why we are where we are today and how fucking crazy it is. Um, we just came back online. We were talking about this book called The Creature from Jekyll Island, uh, which is about the creation of the Federal Reserve, which I just started. And um, I am actually cheating. I'm audibling that because I'm, I'm currently reading a, a free nation deep in debt. Um, and that that explores the the banking industry, right? Uh, my my quest for 2021 is to improve my financial literacy. And you so, do major financial IQ, man, and those are some good books. Oh, dude, they definitely are. So, so I didn't realize that fuck the bond market had been around for like 800 years, 2000. Mm-hmm. The banking industry has been around since even longer. Yeah, they uh, were selling futures in yeah. uh, rice futures in China. And then when you start to, to, to realize that they're ripping these people off, you know, five, 600 years ago, I started to get terrified. I was like, how, how much am I getting ripped off right now? How much do I don't, how much do I not understand? It's the ignorance of not understanding. That's why you want to become your own. If you want wealth and that's why I'd be like, how, how do you invest? Like, what do you invest in? Do you want to go and buy this real estate with me? Like, no, because I'm a banker. Like, I don't invest like you guys do. Like I don't put my money into real estate. I loan people money. And then I take collateral and I get a note and then I charge you interest. And then that collateral is going to be worth whatever it is, plus what I'm going to get. And then whatever you you lose or fail, I don't care. My money is secured. I'm going to take whatever it is I'm going to get back. And then I have a note and then I can go, that note is valuable. And so I can go and buy something with that note and not even have money. So you just gave me a $20,000 note. You just gave me $20,000. I can go buy something for that. And I didn't even have 20 grand for, you know? So it's just a matter of like, learning principles of becoming a banker, you know, and if you can become your own bank and that's why a lot of real estate investors have life insurance is because they take that money and go buy more land. So they don't have to go get a mortgage from a bank and eventually they can just become their own banker. Um, and so the sooner you can just stop relying on having to run to a bank and float their wafers, you're going to be making more money on your own. Oh, exactly. And I think that's a big reason potentially correct me if I'm wrong, like Robert Kiyosaki, he's like, that's why, he, he's he's really big on cash flow. Yeah, like you're always you're paying yourself all the time. You don't you don't you know. I, I think that's very interesting. You're using assets to buy. Yeah, well, like cash flow, like we can, that's like really advanced. We can break that down like another time. But you know, it's like Robert Kiyosaki's principle is just more like waking up your eyes because there's a lot of people who knock Robert Kiyosaki, but they are just looking for something to knock because they're not just understanding the principle that he like. I have Robert Kiyosaki in my law practice. You know. And that's how I can do what I can do, but still be at the park with my girls and traveling, you know, all the time and doing keynote speaking and all these things is because I built a business. I failed in the past because I thought being self-employed was a business and being self-employed is not a business. Being self-employed means that I'm a client driven entity and I'm only making money as I get more clients. But then as I get more clients, my work product has to suffer or um, my revenue has to suffer, you know, like in the business entity, because I can't do both. There's only so many hours in a day. Yeah. So if I'm the one having to do it all and I'm driven on clients, eventually I'm going to fail. And that's why so many law firms and businesses fail because they don't establish a business, a business, you can walk away from your business and it'll survive a year later without you. Now you're successful, yeah. you know, but if you have to be the one that's roofing and contracting and foundation work and this and that, the business is just dependent on you. When you stop working, revenue stops coming in. You don't have a business. You're just self-employed. That's where you got to go to the right. You have to be an investor or a business owner. It's hard for people to create a business. It's easy to become an investor. 
So start as an investor, you can invest in real estate, but then realize once you start investing, you want to transition to becoming a banker as fast as humanly possible, because then you'll make your money, make more money faster. Are you familiar with Neville Ravenkamp by chance? No. You should, uh, you should. I learn. might, I read, there's so much stuff that I read. I, I have, you have to like, give me like a, a title or something. I'm more, I'm, I'm good with titles, not names. Neville, Neville Ravenkamp is uh, an investor. I think he invested, he was an early investor into Uber. Um, he's, he's in the startup game. And then one guy that I'm going to have on the podcast is Moise Ali, which is a CEO for native deodorants. He sold mm-hmm. them to Procter and Gamble for $100 million. Yeah. Um, this, I mean, he started he, the initial investment on this bit and I, I should, I'd love to connect you to, um, the initial investment on, on that was a thousand dollars. He was into e-commerce and then just, just started this kind of bootstrap this company. Yeah. Um, but I mean, this, it can be done. It, it can be done. And, and, and that's a lot, a lot of these people have given me hope that like through self belief and hard work and, you know, as we've talked about self-education and raising their financial IQs and, and, and reading the, the proper material, they're, they're making it. And that's, um, and we can all do that. But Neville Ravenkamp, one of his, his philosophies, like, we got to get everyone rich. He's like, you got to be rich because money doesn't make you happy, but it buys you options. And buy, options it, yeah, you it gives you and, the options to do what you want. Exactly. You know, like, you got to find your own happiness, but like, you're not going to be rich and successful if you don't know about money. Like, is that simple? And people are, you know, they don't teach it in school anymore. Um, people don't know where to go and look for the books and what to read. And, you know, like I was like, kind of like Dave Ramsey is a great starting point for people because like, you got to learn how to budget. You got to just, that's where I started. That's, let's see. That's, that's where you started. Book, that's the first book I read. Yeah. I'll, I'll show. Yeah. 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 The total money maker. Yeah, no, there's like, there's so many good, You if you Robert Kiyosaki, like read, you know, like Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and then throw in like, you know, that book right there, Dave Ramsey, and then Richest Man of Babylon, you got a good start, you know, and I always like the Tony Robbins saying, you know, like success leaves clues, you know, so it's like, if you want to be rich, like, you know, you got to stop being financially stupid, you know? Stop living a fake mirage. Stop competing with the Joneses because the Joneses are really fucking stupid with money. Also, they don't have a budget, you know, so yeah. you got to understand a budget's a good thing. It tells you where your money should be going. It doesn't tell you what you can. It just, it helps direct your money. And so those things are good. Debt is bad. You know, if you want to be financially lean and mean, you're not going to go do like what the 300 pound fat person in the gym's doing. You're going to go walk, you know, walk over to the really ripped up dude and be like, Hey man, what's your workout routine? What's your diet like? Same thing with your financial diet, you know, like you're going to go up to the really rich person and be like, Hey, what should I be doing? And most people are shocked to hell when they find out what these people are doing because rich people like your neighborhood millionaire aren't what you think. They don't live fat, glamorous lifestyles. They have a midsize, you know, middle-class house that's paid off. They drive a two-year-old used car that's paid off. They don't have expensive clothes. They take care of their mind, body, and soul. You know, they're not living to impress you. And that's unfortunately, most people go the opposite route. They're just trying to live to keep up with the, you know, financially stupid Joneses and drowning in their own debt and they can't rub two cents together. And so, you know, I think if you just scale down, set guidelines and stop trying to be Ken and Barbie, you know, you're going to get financially lean and mean real fast. I think so too, man. I honestly think that that's a great place to end it, brother. 
I really awesome. appreciate you coming on this show. We'll definitely get you in there again. We'll dive into the the treachery that is the legal system. And who knows, maybe next time we'll talk about aliens. All right, brother. Thank definitely, you. Thank brother. you so much. Thanks.